They say everything is bigger in Texas. It's true for barbecue, live music, and definitely football. And if you're Jamie Roots, the president of the Houston Texans of the National Football League, the job of leading a team that hasn't yet won a Super Bowl in a demanding market with so many social, safety, and sales issues staring you in the face, well, you better come ready to play. That's why Jamie Roots is this week's Game Face Exec. So I'm here with Jamie Roots, president of the NFL's Houston Texans. And uh, actually, I can't say this about a lot of people, but a longtime friend of mine in the industry, which means Jamie is as old as I am, uh, almost. Uh, but Jamie, I really appreciate you joining us for Game Face Execs. And uh, this is a busy, hectic time for folks in the NFL and especially you in your position. But thanks a lot for spending a little bit of time with us today and talking about what it means to be a Game Face executive. Well, over the past 25 years, I, I haven't told you no, and I wasn't going to start now. <laughs> That's true. Thanks, Jamie. Um, you know, I, I, I want to I point some things out. You notice that I'm wearing, I'm wearing the brand today, the Houston Texans. Uh, you and I have known each other a long time, um, but I got this shirt from you several years ago because you're a good guy. Uh, we've worked together over the years. We're going to talk about that today, but I want to take the I want to take the listeners and those who are watching this back to um, to the beginning of your career. But before we go there, you and I are speaking. We're in the midst of a, a lot of uncertainty uh, in every market in the country. Uh, right, the economy is uh, got a big question mark on it. Uh, we're going through a pandemic. Hopefully, we're, we're starting to see the end of that. Not the end, but at least the tail end of it. Um, and you and I are talking at a particular time when there has been a lot of protests, even some civil unrest. I know these are issues that are very important to you personally and also to the McNair family for whom you work and the Texas organization, the Texans organization as a whole. Um, I'm just wondering if you could allow us to kind of open the door a little bit to the boardroom of the Texans and talk to us a little bit about the conversations that you're having during this very unusual and prickly time. How does an organization with as much prominence in a community like the Texans has, and even in the state, not to mention the league as a whole, give us an insight, some insight into the kind of conversations, the, the principles that guide those conversations and those decisions you're making right now? Yeah, it's a <clears throat> it's a big question. All right, so I'll try to I'll try to uh, give you a, uh, a a clear response on that. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, as an, well, I'll, I'll just say broadly. Uh, someone told me one time that uh, challenge is the crucible of leadership. It's like a stick. You pick up a stick. You you can't just get one in. You can't be a leader and not address challenges. So this is natural. I mean, life is hard. And once you accept that it's hard, the fact that it's hard doesn't matter anymore. It's just what are those challenges that we're, we're dealing with and what, what do we need to do about it? Again, fortunately or unfortunately, as an organization, we've had to deal with a number of crisis situations. You know, a lot of it has been around, you know, hurricanes because we're here on the Gulf Coast. And, and, and this, is, this is like a hurricane, but a hurricane's like a sprint, right? It's like a... Uh, uh, you know, a quick in and out. The uh, this is this is more like a marathon. So while it's similar to what we've done before, we've had to do it for a much more uh, prolonged time. And so, I think the most important thing is is really uh, attitudes that people bring to the table. One of the things that uh, principles that we established as we were approaching the NFL lockout, which was about six months of complete uncertainty, uh, and it is positively focused that you have to discipline yourself to balance the negativity that you're seeing and, and embrace that it's, it's, not, it's not all negative. There are positives. You have to look hard for them, but you got to balance out. Um, and then also you have to uh, focus squarely on the things that you can control. And so that, that's the easy part is focus on what I control. What can I do right now to make a difference? The hard part is having the discipline to reject things that you can't control because the things that you can't control are a complete distraction. You have to put up a stop sign, set it aside. Occasionally, you know, in an environment like this, you're going to have a little bit of self-indulgence and, you know, a little bit of complaining and gosh, why is it so hard? And we worked so hard to put this together and now we're having to take it down again. But 
get yourself back to what can we do about it? And if you do that consistently and get everybody within the organization thinking about what are the priorities, what can we do about it, uh, it, it's just amazing what a group of individuals coming together can accomplish. The things that you were talking about are all the, the details, the decisions and all that. All of that falls into place if you have this positively focused mindset. You also have to pull your, your time horizon in. in. In great times, we can dream about the beautiful future. In challenging times, you can only look about a week or two weeks in advance. Those are, those are the only certain things. And, and it's amazing that once you do one thing, it opens up the next thing, which opens up the next thing, which opens up the next thing. But if you look five steps down the chain, it completely falls apart. So it's all part of controlling what you can control, but it's that your time horizon is, uh, is it needs to be pulled in and make the next logical move and just keep going forward. Well, Jamie, when when you are a football team, first and foremost, now granted, you know, you work for an entertainment company as well, um, but your primary property is the NFL football team. Um, in, in today's world, can you just remain a football team or do you have to become something bigger, larger, if you will? Um, do, are the expectations greater today than they were, say, 20 and 40 years ago for, for a sports team to be more than just um, a Sunday product? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I, I Absolutely, the expectations of our sports teams uh, have increased exponentially since I've been in the industry. I mean, uh, but fortunately, fortunately, during the time that I was in, in Columbus, which was a long time ago for five years, but the last 20 years with the Texans, our philosophy has always been that we were bigger than just an athletic organization. We talk about the Texans and this has been the same from the very beginning. We have what I, I term the three imperatives win championships. So at the core, we are a competitive organization that is trying to win a championship annually for, for our community and for our fans. Uh, but second is create memorable experiences. People are investing in coming to our games to be part of something bigger than themselves, to engage with their family and their friends in a way that they can't Monday to Saturday. On, uh, on Sunday, we come together as one. We are Texans, most diverse city in America, and nothing brings us together like the game of football. And then number three is do great things for Houston. Certainly there's dollars that we contribute. We're like $35 million that we've given to important organizations across uh, this community, we're the number one per capita contributor to the United Way in the city of Houston and really always have been since we've been here. We, the way that we conduct ourselves does great things for Houston. When you see the Houston Texans on Sunday night football against the Green Bay Packers, I mean, that's beamed across the planet. And that pe people may not know anything about Houston, Texas, other than what they see with those fans coming in in their battle red shirts to, uh, to tell the Packers, you're not playing 53 today. You're playing 71,000, mm. all of us together. And then all of the other events that we've brought to Houston. Houston, uh, in 2002, when we had played our first season, Houston was not even on the radar as a soccer market. We brought the first international game here, USA-Mexico, in 2003. And now Houston is one of the leading soccer markets in America, a viable competitor to host the World Cup when it comes, uh, comes to America. We've hosted the greatest brands, whether it's Manchester United, Manchester City, Barcelona, Real Madrid, uh, all of these great teams. We resurrected the college football bowl game in Houston and over the last 14 years have taken it from obscurity to one of the leading bowl games in America, one of the best, five best attended bowl games in America. So those are the kinds of things, not just dollars, but how we conduct ourselves and the breadth of entertainment offerings, we don't have to do that. Football teams wouldn't normally do that, but we step out of our comfort zone in order to be something bigger for the city. You just mentioned a second ago that you're the most diverse community in America. I wasn't aware of that, but as you say that, it makes sense to me. Uh, the times that I've been in Houston, 
times that we've worked together. Uh, a lot of people don't realize uh, that Houston's the fourth largest city in the country, uh, right? You got New York, LA, Chicago, and then Houston. Yeah. Unless that's changed, James. No, 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 that's yeah, that's right. We're fourth, and we're right on the tail of Chicago. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I mean, there are hun- over a hundred language languages spoken in this community, mm-hmm. and we embrace diversity. We see diversity as really probably our greatest strength going forward as a community. We look like America will look, you know, twenty-five years from now. Hmm. So. Uh, there's one player on your team when you talk about being more than just a player, right? We all know JJ Watts. So he is a, um, he's a transformational player, not just on the field, but what he does in the community. And uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Because um, I don't, I don't know if what came first JJ's attitude towards community and giving back or the Texans culture or if they were just a perfect blend. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that player that we read about and we see on SportsCenter, but he's more than a player. He's, he's an active participant in the community. You can tell he really cares. He's not just lip service. Just share, share with us some insights about working with such a, such a transformational player. Yeah, I mean, it's been a great blessing. One of the, great, one of the greatest blessings of my career to have the opportunity to work with J.J. Watt. Um, he, you asked the question, is it, was it, was it him or was it our environment or was it both? I think it started with him, but I think him coming into our environment, which embraces so completely com- community service, it, you just feel it in the walls of the organization, you know, that we're about the city. We want to do great things for Houston. So it started with him and I think we helped him to, to elevate even higher. I'll tell you a story. When he first started with us, uh, we had drafted him. And it was kind of a controversial draft pick. Um, uh, our coaches thought he had a great motor and had a huge potential. Um, and I will tell you a, a funny story that one of our coaches said about it. But it was during the NFL lockout. And one of the rules of the lockout is teams could not communicate with their players until it was resolved. And it didn't get, didn't get resolved until July. So uh, I got a call, there was, a, there was a, a horrible accident, a family here in, in Bel Air that was coming back from Colorado. They were in a tragic car accident. Uh, the parents perished. Uh, the daughter uh, wound up being okay, but they, the, the Barry boys were, were paralyzed. And so a friend called and said, can you send some players over to, uh, to just comfort these kids? I said, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't call the players because of the lockout. Wow. That night I turned my TV on, who was over at the hospital with those kids? J.J. Watt. And I knew from that point we had something really special. I, I talk about J.J. as being the triple threat, and he's the only triple threat athlete that I've seen, right? Has tremendous God-given talent, and he absolutely does. He's a great, great athlete. But not only does he do, he, he adds to it that magic of work ethic. He has a tremendous work ethic. He, he knows I mean, I, I have a saying that is posted on the, on the back of my computer that, that success isn't owned, it's leased, and rent is due every day. That was from J.J. Watt, and we have it in one of our conference rooms as well. But the third is understanding that as, as an athlete, you have a shelf life to be able to make a difference. You're at a privileged position, the same way that we feel about the Texans. You know, we're in a privileged position. People look to us. Yeah, you know, for better or worse, look to us for leadership. How should I act? And JJ understands that when he says something, people will listen. When he does something, it will make a difference for people. So he really does. He has maximized every bit of the opportunity that a professional athlete has by taking his God-given talent, working his tail off, and recognizing that he can be bigger than just the sport. The uh, interesting story is Wade Phillips, who was, uh, uh, he was our defensive coordinator at the time and was really integral in our selection of J.J. He was asked uh, right before training camp, so what do you think about J.J.? He said, well, I think he's got a great sense of humor. I think J.J. is going to be a bust. A bust? He said, yeah, a bust in Canton. <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. 
Well, he was quite prophetic, wasn't he? He was. He, he absolutely saw the talent that J.J. had, the work ethic that J.J. had, the uh, character, the integrity, the love for the game of football, and all those things came together, and we're just really fortunate that he's in our community. Wow. Uh, I got something to show you. <laughs> that doesn't exist. We don't have white helmets. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you probably can't see it, but uh, – uh, Right there at the top, Dom Caper's signature. Yeah. Right. Explain who Dom Caper was. Oh, I remember who Dom Capers was. Dom Capers was the first head coach of the Houston Texans. That's right. So I was actually in your office the day that you announced this logo. Oh my god. And uh, I know you don't remember that, but because uh, I've I've spent many days in your office, but on that particular day, uh, I got one of these autographed helmets from the coach. Uh, to an, it was it's a beautiful logo, right? I mean, okay. um, I know you guys. Um, wrestled over which logo to use back in those days. Uh, what what year was that? That was. I, I, I think we announced the logo maybe in two thousand and one. Yeah, because you, you maybe in two thousand. Well, you joined the Texans in two thousand. Right? Very beginning of two thousand. Yeah, so my, I, I think it was probably two thousand one. Yeah. So um, I want. I was curious. You left the major. You left Major League Soccer. We're going to talk about that as well, but. Um, well, before we go there, I, I've got a comment on the logo, right? That, oh, yeah. uh, so the, uh, we were in the process of the design, and you're right. It's, it is a beautiful, classic, um, you know, classy uh, identity for the team and really screams Texan. But we, we knew we wanted the name Texans, but we couldn't find an identity to go with it. None of, nobody liked anything in the focus groups that we were doing. We showed them all kinds of artwork, all kinds of colors, nothing resonated. And so I told Bob, I said, hey, uh, Bob McNair, I said, Bob, I think we're going to have to scratch, scratch the logo launch. He said, why? He said, we haven't found anything that anybody likes. And he said, where are you testing this? I said, we do it at focus groups. Okay, well, why don't you invite me to your next focus group? And I said, okay, I'll bring you in. You can see the challenges we're dealing with. And that was the first focus group. It wasn't exactly the logo that you see, but it was generally a bull and the star and um so we showed it to the fans and they were like pounding on the table that is perfect that's exactly what you need and i was so mad i looked at bob and he said he looks at me and he said this marketing stuff's not that hard okay <laughs> uh timing is everything huh <laughs> So I want to talk about Bob McNair. Uh, for those who don't know, he, he passed away a few years ago as the owner of the, of the Texans. He was the one that brought the club into Houston. Uh, he's an institution within the state. Uh, he's, he was a very successful businessman, a wonderful philanthropist. Uh, his family has continued his legacy, obviously. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about Bob McNair, what you learned from him, and then I want to ask how the whole um, how the whole love affair began between you and Bob. But t tell us a little bit about what you learned from the man. Well, um, well, let, let me let me start with the love affair because it 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 I've been blessed to only work for two ownership families in sports: Bob McNair and the uh, uh, and the Hunt family, Lamar Hunt. And both of them are sports royalty. I mean, amazing people. And so leaving Lamar and his family was really difficult. But I'll tell you, the first time I sat down in Bob's office when I visited Houston, it's like, I, I've, they, they speak differently, they, they're different, but there's so much similar between these two families and these two people. He kind of, Bob kind of had me at a low. Right. So that's uh, that's how that went. But in terms of what I learned from Bob, it really it was I, I, I've got an MBA from Indiana, but I feel like I got a second MBA working from Bob. There were a lot of holes in my in my skill set and my experiences that Bob was able able to fill just kind of um, through the conversations that we had regularly over almost 20 years. Uh, but I think of, of all the business experiences I had with him and the insights that I gained, what's more important is, is how he developed me as a person. Uh, I had recently married. Right after we got to Houston, we had our first child. He really helped me to understand how to be a, a, a good husband, how to be a good father, how to be a good community citizen, 
uh, and it was not really any, it wasn't like lectures or advice. It was just the more the way he was. I mean, he modeled the uh, behavior. He walked the talk. He modeled the way for me and, um, you know, his integrity, his character, his focus on honesty, his focus on fairness in all things, even if you, you, you occasionally get taken advantage of, you, you always have to be, uh, you know, have a spirit of fairness and the importance of relationships. He did a wonderful job building, trusting relationships with people. And that's why he was so successful. And he was so positive and optimistic. He was interviewed by one of our media personalities said, uh, they asked him, so Bob, you're always so, you're always so positive and optimistic. Why is that? And he said, well, I've never seen a successful person who wasn't. Hmm. And so he, um, he was a spectacular man, a great role model for me, kind of like a father figure and treated me as part of his family and uh, has really inspired me to, to be my best and for our organization to be our best. Well, when he, I'm going to use the word recruited you away from the Columbus crew of Major League Soccer, which uh, you had led the crew for uh, five years at that time. How did he, how was he successful doing that? Because as you said, you worked for Lamar Hunt and the Hunt family who are institutions, not only they were pioneers in soccer, but they were pioneers in the NFL, um, ironically. And so you left the pioneering family that started, helped to start Major League Soccer, and you went to the league that they helped start, which is the NFL. But how was Bob McNair successful getting you away from that? Was it simply the lure of the NFL, of working for, you know, the king of sports, or what was it? Well, the, you know, the, having a, a comfort level with, the, with Bob and with the, his family was important, that this would be a winning organization. And I really felt that from the, the first time I visited with him. But I, I had, I felt like over five years in Columbus that I had, done what I had come, come there to do, uh, had established a professional sports franchise that was very successful, had a great season ticket base, had a great business that was on an awesome trajectory. We had built the first soccer-specific stadium in America, uh, built the first training facility specifically for an MLS franchise. So I was like, you know, I could probably stay here at the, in my mid-30s until I retire, but I don't feel like I'm done. And so as I reflected on that, I was like, what, 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 what do I think is missing? So, well, this has been a great success in a sport that is my primary sport, what I grew up playing, what I grew up, what I coached. Uh, and so, okay, I can do it in that environment. And it's in a small market. Like Columbus is, you know, you know, one of the smallest professional sports markets in America. And so I wanted to prove to myself that it wasn't about the comfort level with soccer. It wasn't because it was a small market go to the NFL, which is the elite of sports uh, uh, properties, and in a market that's the fourth, as you said, the fourth largest market in America. And, and I wanted to prove to myself that I could be successful there as well. And, uh, and it worked out. Uh, Buffy Filippel, he you know Buffy, uh, Teamwork Consulting. Buffy is the one who was doing the recruiting, and she called me when I was at my house in Columbus. Um, and we built something really special there. And uh, asked me if I'd be interested in working in the NFL. I said, "What? Well, yeah, yeah, this is a great call. I've been having those thoughts. So, well, what about in Houston? I said, well, that'd be great, but Houston doesn't have an NFL team. She said, they're going to. This guy, Bob McNair, is just about to pay more than anybody's ever paid to relaunch the NFL in Houston. And so she gave me the opportunity to come down and visit with McNair's, and, and it went from there. Wonderful. And uh... – when you were at Major League Soccer, you were executive of the year, uh, just what, the first or second year of the league's existence? First year, first year. Yeah, mm -hmm. first year. So you were recognized immediately as not only a talent, but uh, as, a, as a mover and a shaker, uh, someone who could have great influence on the sport. Um, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned the opening of Columbus Crew Stadium in 1999. Yeah. Um, Again, I don't expect you to remember this, Jamie, but uh, Game Face, our company, was working with Major League Soccer quite extensively in those first few years. We were traveling to each of the clubs. Uh, we were, as Mark Abbott, uh, who is the president of the league today and one of the, um, one of the people who really, he wrote the original business plan for Major League Soccer, didn't he? Right, right. So he's he transitioned the from the World Cup in 94. Yeah. So Mark has been with Major League Soccer longer than anybody since its inception. 
And uh, so he called, he called us and invited us to participate. We were the official sales coach for Major League Soccer for the first three or four years. But one of my highlights in that relationship was being invited by you and by Mark um, to come to Columbus Crews Stadium opening night. And uh, what an event that was. And uh, it was just, it, it was a milestone for soccer in America, because as you said, it was the opening of the, of the first soccer specific stadium. Um, I know we've, you know, they, they've since renovated the stadium because uh, that was 21 years ago. Do you remember what happened at the end of that wonderful evening um, with traffic? Yes, I parking? do. Amazing that you bring that up because I was sitting uh, you know, after the game in our, in our post game party area and, and I could see the traffic and I had a report that the traffic was just ridiculous. I was sitting with the mayor, mm. uh, Greg Lashutka, who was, has been a dear friend and remains a great friend. Uh, Greg said, uh, looks like you got some traffic out there. I said, yeah, I know. I don't know what's going on. He said, I think you need to hire the city of Columbus police to uh, provide your traffic direction because we were using the state uh, state troopers because we were on their property. So they had directed the traffic from a downtown festival right in front of the stadium and nobody could get out. So the next game we adjusted our call for police and uh, had much better traffic flow. Just those little details, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Things that you don't anticipate. Yeah, that was a that was a very momentous evening. Um, so, you mentioned your background is in soccer, and you can see I've got a Columbus Crew jersey behind me, um, and uh, and so you started as a college soccer player at Clemson University. You won two NCAA titles with them. Um, you were also, which I think. I think viewers would find very interesting, the student body president at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so you were, you have leadership skills from day one. You, uh, were, you, were you the captain of the team as well? I wasn't. Uh, the captain was selected by the coach. And no. uh, uh, my dear friend, Paul Rutenis, was uh, the captain my senior year when we won the championship. Uh, dear friend, uh, 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 Char uh, Charlie Morgan uh, was the captain my freshman year. Well, you shouldn't be the captain if you're also the student body president. That wouldn't be I, fair. I didn't have right? time for it. I had no time for it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what do you think it is, Jamie? I mean, just straight out, you've got leadership skills, uh, talent. Where does that come from? Um, well, I, I think I've always had a desire to lead. I've always wanted to, uh, you know, organize and be the one to help everyone else be successful, you know? Uh, so I had a desire and it does, I do think it starts there because you can have some of the traits, but if you don't really want it, it's not going to happen. You're not going to spend the time. You're not going to have the kind of JJ Watt work ethic at it. You're not going to, I mean, and I've, and I've always treated leadership as a craft, you know, at, when I was in college, was I a good leader? Absolutely not. I had an interest, but I built and built, had new opportunities to lead. Um, when I came to Col uh, Columbus, you know, entry level president, right? And so I had to learn on the fly. I made lots of mistakes, uh, but I would always break those down. I'm, I'm a pretty um, self-aware person and reflective on what I'm doing. Is it getting me the kind of results that I want? And if not, what do I need to do differently? Um, I'm fortunate that I, uh, you know, am, am good and okay with failure, right? That I'm willing to take risks, that I'm, I've, I have a creative mind uh, as evidenced by, you know, most people would, would hate to be in a startup environment. I mean, you, you have a blank sheet of paper, for me, it's a dream. You know, my hardest transition was really the Columbus part was easy, starting with nothing and putting it together and building it. And then in, in Houston doing the same. My transition was around 2006, 2007, when I was still treating the organization as a startup. And I, it was proven to me that I was really being a micromanager. And I think in that startup environment, you've got to be. You've got to have your hands on to ensure that everything is 
all the plants are growing the way that they should in perfect parallel. Everybody understands who we are, how we operate, what matters most. But eventually, an ongoing business, you gotta, you can't be working in the business. Uh, you can't be working on the business if you're working in the business. And that was kind of a transition for me, going from this micromanager meddling person to a leader of leaders. I was leading followers. I had to elevate the leading leaders. And so I've, I, I like much better where I am today that I, I really manage people by remote control. I get great people. I give them clear direction. We have a solid understanding of how we, uh, how we operate. We have tremendous trust in each other. They trust that I have their back and I trust that they, ha they have my back so I don't have to watch over them. Just set very clear expectations and then hold them accountable for those results. And then I can spend my time on the things that really matter most, the, the who, how, and why, the, the people, the talent, the organizational environment that we provide them to give their best every day, the how, the culture, the habits that we want from our people um, and ensuring that that culture remains strong and create ways to reinforce culture. And then the, the why, what's the purpose? Uh, really keeping everybody's sights, not on today, like we were talking about crisis situations. We got to deal with the crisis, but when championships create memorable experiences, do great things for Houston. Every, all of us want that, right? It, and, and that makes the hard work worthwhile, reminding them that there's a reason, like in sports, there's a reason why you're doing sprints at the end of practice. Uh, uh, it, it was uh, uh, Tom Landry who said, leadership is getting people to do what they don't want to do in order to get what they do want to get. And so as that, that's, you, and you can't be doing those things if you're in the middle meddling, you know, really uh, having your eyes over people's shoulders. You've got to trust that they're professionals. They have great, um, they have great desire to win, right? And just help them sit with them and help them understand what winning looks like and then let them go out and do it. And when they have problems, they can come to you. When they need resources, they can come to you. But otherwise, go get your job done. Well, Jamie, have you ever, in, in all of those years, in 25 years of, of leading teams, in fact, when I say teams, I should go back even longer than that, because you led teams in university. So in your last 30 years or whatever it's been, um, there's got to be times when you have chosen the wrong people, um, or you've inherited the wrong people. Mm -hmm. How does a leader uh, deal with that? What do you do about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, um, well, think about it. Let, let's use a, uh, uh, what you have to avoid is what I term in the sports business. You know, when a GM selects a player in the draft, you, you really want them to succeed. And sometimes you'll work so hard that you keep the wrong people around for too long. I think it, it, in general, we're way too quick to hire and we're way too slow to fire. And so what, what I've had to do within our organization, because it's not just me, I've got my leadership team and I'll deal with them. But on down the line, I got to make sure that the, you know, on a very regular basis, we're uh, getting the people that don't fit, you know, and it's usually not around performance. It's usually around cultural fit. And we talk about the attitudes that we're looking for from our people. It's about having uh, a, 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 what the talents that we want are a great work ethic, and a winning attitude, positive, optimistic, team-oriented, and a demonstrated commitment to operate consistent with our values, which are being innovative, memorable, passionate, accountable, courageous, and working as a team. So those are the, that's usually where people get off track, that they just don't fit. And so we have a, uh, a, you know, several times a year, we go through every employee, and the manager reports out uh, who are the tails, if you will. Think about a bell curve. Any, uh, any population, usually er almost everybody's right in the middle. And there's some people that are stars and there's some people that are problems. And so I ask them, anybody in the middle, don't worry about it. Let's talk about your stars and let's talk about your problems. And as a team, you know, they get kind of 360 feedback on, every on everybody within their department. And when we have problems, once, we get, once they're out there, sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. 
once it's known that we have a problem, then it's on them and they know the clock is ticking. You know, got to work with them, got to do a performance plan. If it doesn't work out, it's time to part ways. It's usually better for the employee and it's better for us. And, uh, you know, our cheer, our cheer coordinator one time said to me when she came in and said, I've got this one cheerleader that I really like to uh, need to kick off the team. And, and, I, and I knew her. I knew her family and her story. And I said, oh, shouldn't you reconsider? You know, I mean, she just really got a great background. She said, Jamie, let me stop you there. Keeping the wrong people on the bus is unfair to all the right people. We think there's not a cost to keeping somebody around who's not a fit. There is a cost. It, it does frustrate people. And as a leader, you really have to nip those problems in the butt. It's like a garden, right? You, 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 gardeners will tell you, if you're going to go out and weed, it's better to weed too much than to weed too little, because if the weeds remain, they're going to take over the good stuff. So you got to be a great gardener in order to uh, maintain a really talented base. Do you mind if I ask, uh, how, does the, how does your boss uh, measure you and your performance? Yeah, it's, uh, I would say, you know, fortunately at, at the head of the organization, he's got a lot of great metrics to look at. Um, and then there's the subjective component. And really it's, it's, it's always been a conversation, you know, coming over to the house. Well, and I will say that it, it's incumbent upon me to tell my story. So very regularly, I am summarizing the victories that we have. So at the end of the year, it's really not very difficult to evaluate me. All those things that I have communicated in addition to the financial results um, are, are there. And so we sit down, have a conversation about it, and, uh, and then move forward. So really, I do my own personal evaluation. And then, um, so that's my test. And then that test is graded by our ownership. And they, you know, reward me uh, how, they, how they see fit. So in all those years, uh, both at the crew and at the Texans, um, has there been one decision that you can go back to? I'm not going to ask you a, a decision you regret. I personally don't like looking backwards. Um, I try to learn from it, but I don't try to dwell on it. But can you identify a decision that perhaps was your most difficult that you had to make? Um, I know there's been many in the mm -hmm. positions that you've held and the prominent positions that you've held. But is, is there been one that you can share with us that was particularly difficult that you really wrestled with? Yeah. Well, um, you know, the, the most difficult decisions are the, are the, are the people-related decisions. I, I and mean, I always agonize those, you know, because you're dealing with, with people's lives, their livelihoods, their, uh, uh, their uh, you know, their careers. There's a, there's a book called uh, The Dichotomy of Leadership. Okay, it's by uh, two Navy SEALs, and they talk about all the dichotomies that exist, but for, for a military leader, the most difficult dichotomy, and I will talk about it in a business sense, but is having to love your people and know that for the good of the unit, you may have to put them in harm's way. Mm. And it's the same way in business to be able to manage that dichotomy. They say, uh, you know, uh, you know, genius is being able to keep two, uh, you know, opposing thoughts in your mind at the same time and not going crazy, right? And so to be able to know that you have to operate on both of those planes as a leader is something you just have to accept. Uh, challenge is the crucible of leadership, right? But the, the one decision that I will mention to you is maybe it was 10, 12 years ago, 14 years ago, maybe we had built this amazing uh, tailgate experience for our fans. I mean, they loved it from day one. I mean, it was like the barbecue cook-off 10 times a year in our parking lots. 30,000 people having a meal before a game, music, uh, there are bands out there, there are big screen TVs, inflatables. I mean, it's, it's not hot dogs and hamburgers. I mean, it was gourmet food. It's then, Texas, right? What's that? It's Texas. It's Texas. That's right. But across the freeway, there was an empty lot uh, from the Astral World coming down, and they had leased that lot to a ticket broker in town. And he went on the TV before our season started and said, "Hey, tailgating is amazing at NRG Stadium, but you don't have to have a ticket. Just come here, and you can walk across, and you can go and tailgate." 
And, and so we didn't think much of it to begin with. In the first few games, we had a few thousand people that did it. Then we had a game, we played the Cowboys. I think we had 20,000 people without tickets in our parking lots, uh, squatting on the, on the parking spaces. So there weren't parking spaces for the people who had bought them. So they just rolled their coolers in there. And there were fights before the game, fights after the game. So the, th- the decision that we had to make was, do we go through, you know, take what was termed a draconian measure and try to make NRG Park a ticketed environment? Nobody had ever ticketed the parking lots before. So, but that's the decision we took. And there was tremendous uh, media backlash of how awful the experience was going to be. But on come game, game day, I actually set a post-game press availability to be able to answer the media's questions because they were all out in the parking lots. None of them showed up. It went back to normal. It was the wonderful, magical, family-friendly experience. Uh, they don't always work out that way, but the important part was the time that we spent evaluating and, and had to ask ourselves at the end of the day, Bob, Bob McNair liked to say, you, you can never go wrong by doing what's right. And we had to ask ourselves, this is the hard thing. This is full of risk. We could completely blow up what was so important with our uh, experience, but we knew it was the right thing to do, and we just went ahead. Uh, Sam Houston had a uh, saying that courage is doing what's right and just accept the consequences. Once you figure out what's right, doesn't matter what the consequences are. Hmm. Well, you talk about the, um, the unusual position that an NFL franchise, especially in a football-crazed state like Texas, has. Um, uh, in as far as the attention that you get, right, and the scrutiny that you get, not only from a fan base, a rabid fan base, uh, which every team hopes for, right? You want a fan base, a fan base that's invested, not apathetic. Right. But you also have a media mm-hmm. that is constantly looking over your shoulder, second guessing every move you make. Now, every CEO, every president of a large organization, a multi-million dollar organization like you run, has that kind of scrutiny. But could you share with us a little bit about the peculiarities of running a franchise or any organization like you do, where you have an entire, you have networks devoted 24-7 to doing nothing but talking about you and your failures or your missteps. You have sections of newspapers that are dedicated nothing but to your industry. It's a very, very unusual place in sports that you, that you, um, that you have. What's that like? How, how, do you, how do you finally get used to that or do you ever? Well, I think you just, you just accept it as a fact of life. I said earlier about the stick, you know? I mean, you pick up the stick, you get both ends. You wanna be at the, at the pinnacle, you're gonna have tremendous attention. Um, I guess I come at it with, uh, with, with, uh, with a perspective that helps because of where I came from. To be, spend five years in a fledgling soccer uh, league and franchise, desperate for attention, well, now you got it, right? And so I never, I, 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 hey, I, it's a great blessing. The exposure is a tremendous blessing. We serve the media. I mean, we, we want the media to be engaged in what we're doing because we know how important a conduit they are to our fans. Um, I believe that the way you treat the media is how the fans think you treat them. And so, and we've won the, uh, the Roselle Award a number of times as the, as the number one uh, media, uh, media service organization in the National Football League because we do know how important they are. But it's just something, it comes with the territory. You know, everything's a mixed bag. Uh, when I was in Columbus, I wanted the attention here. You kind of want to, you know, don't, don't look over here. We, but the other, the other thing and the difference between Colum- in Columbus, you could do all kinds of crazy stuff and it didn't work. Not all that many people saw it anyway. So, you know, you just tried something else. When you come to the NFL, there's much more, it's got to be much more deliberate and intentional because whatever we do, everybody's going to see it. And so, uh, and the expectation is we win at everything that we choose to do. So I want to ask you two more questions and then um, as we wrap up, and they both relate to the future. Uh, Let's talk about the future of the NFL. Um, How do you see it from your vantage point, from where you sit? What does the future of the NFL look like? Well, I'll preface this with a phrase from Yogi Berra. 
uh, I, I never make predictions, especially about the future. Okay. So, um, but I, I think the, the NFL is, um, you know, we, we are at the top and importantly, there's this, there's this mentality in a locker room. I, I call it the get better mentality. And in our sport, I mean, it just, it's so simple, but it's so powerful that you have to, you know, every game gets broken down so completely and the coaches and the players, and they think about how do we do this better? How do we do it better? Kind of like the, the military after action review and the league approaches it that way from game to game and from season to season, what's better? How do we get better? And as, and, and as a team, we're the same way. I think the future is incredibly bright for the National Football League. I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be, but I will tell you, as long as we do not get complacent, as long as we handle success, you mentioned Dom Capers earlier. Dom has a great line. He says, for every, every 10 players that can handle adversity, there's only one that can handle success. We have to be that one that can handle success. If we ever start, you know, uh, uh, drinking our own Kool-Aid, uh, that, that's, that is, that's when you start going over the crest. We have to constantly be reinventing ourselves and that's where, that's what we're committed to do. Um, sorry, you reminded me of another question. Um, <clears throat> I'll get to that last question in just a second. So, um, I'm writing a book, as you know, it's about sales game changers. Uh, it's about methodology and it's also about the people and uh, the people who are game changers when it comes to that industry. You've been a game changer. Uh, you went into Major League Soccer as a very young professional. You were given the title of a general manager. Uh, I, I think you were worthy of it. Some people may have thought, man, who's this guy coming out of you know, the collegiate ranks? He's got a fancy MBA, and he's running a, a, an expansion franchise. But you were a game changer in Columbus. Uh, you helped to innovate for that league. And then you're doing the same thing with, with the NFL. What role um, does sales play in your success? The ability to persuade and influence other people? Yeah, that's a great question, Rob. Uh, I was fortunate that, uh, you know, my first experience was with IBM and I spent like nine months to a year in sales training. So it was kind of a sales MBA from one of the great sales companies of all times. Um, and then uh, when I went to Procter & Gamble, it's kind of a different level, but it was still sales. It was brand management. So you're trying to influence consumer behavior, uh, you know, remotely, whereas sales is that one-on-one. -on -one. So I had the advertising and promotion component, and I had the direct sales and sales management experience. And those, I still rely upon those principles today, because at the end of the day, as, as you go up in an organization, it's less and less about the things and it's more and more about the people. All day long, you are looking to influence people to get the kinds of outcomes that you're trying to get. And it's not nefarious, it's not, uh, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not like you're trying to coerce people because people do things of their free will. But what you do have to do is get into the shoes of somebody else. Okay, I want to get here. How do I motivate them to help me to get where I want to go and how can we do this together? What's going to be a win-win? I mean, you think about, you know, a lot of my job is around negotiation. You know, what is negotiations? All sales principles, trying to get to yes, you know, and figuring out a place that everybody feels good about it. So I would say sales and sales principles have a role in my, um, my life every day, my work life every day and always have. And I'm really blessed that I started with such a solid foundation. Absolutely. IBM really revolutionized the way companies sell, didn't they? Yeah. And you were part of that training. So let's talk about your future. Um, I've known you for 25 years. It's really been a pleasure to be a, a, a friend of yours and, uh, and to be able to work with you and your franchises over those years. Um, where, where does Jamie Roots want to be or see himself being? I won't say 25 years from now. That's a long time. How about, how about 10 years from now? How about 20 years from now? Where do you think, what, what, will you still, what do you still need to do in your career for you to be fulfilled and say that I've made the difference, I've had the impact I wanted to have? 
Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the, uh, as, as my career has progressed, my, my family has become a much bigger uh, component. I, I, I mean, they, they would, they would laugh and they say, dad, we know how much you work, <laughs> but, but I do, I do, uh, my, my family's really important to me, ensuring that my kids get off to a great start in their life. My, my daughter is a, is a rising junior in high school. My son is a rising freshman uh, in college. He'll be headed to TCU here shortly. Um, so, and, and my wife, Melissa is finding some really great things that fulfill her and things that we do together. So, so that, that's all good. But in, in turn, you know, professionally, I, I am really focused on being great, uh, trying to be great where, where my feet are. Right. Um, and, and just make sure this organization and the people just, I, I really love what I'm doing today, but I do see on the horizon, I, I would like to, uh, you know, as you, as you mentioned, you're writing a book, uh, is I'd, I'd like to put it down on paper, you know, the, these principles that have helped to guide these two very successful franchises and, and the things that I've learned and some of the stories along the way, uh, not that anybody would want to read it, but I think it would be good to get it down. Maybe at least my children could have a much better idea of what their father was doing while, uh, while they were, they were growing up and, and going to school. So, uh, that would be something into the horizon. Um, you know, but I'm, I want to win a championship. I, w- I, w- I want to be part of a Super Bowl winning franchise. I feel like, and I've felt for the last few years that I, I, I just got to get that done before I really look beyond the organization that I'm a part of. I'm so blessed to be part of the McNair's organization. They give me such uh, latitude and such opportunity to do that for our team to do amazing things for us to really live out our best life. Um, right here, uh, right here in Houston. So I really can't, uh, can't complain on anything, but a book would be as about as far as I'm looking. Hopefully someday that will be a re- reality. And as you opened your question with, Hey, it's been a great blessing to be uh, a friend of yours and have huge respect and really look forward to reading your book. You are a true professional. And that's one reason why I wanted you to join me on this podcast. Uh, because I think a lot of us can continue to learn from you and watching you and, and interfacing with you. So I congratulate you on all that you have done and all that you are doing, sincerely. Well, thanks for your friendship. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you, Jamie. Uh, We know you're busy. Let you get back to running one of the best franchises in the NFL. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. Good to be with you. Thanks for being a part of this episode of Game Face Execs. If you found any of it useful or helpful, please rate or like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I always appreciate you referring us to others as well. I'll see you next week. Until then... Persuade, Influence, Inspire.